So last week I was at the HEB down the road. I uh, was on my way home. I was grabbing some groceries for dinner. And, you know, I was tired for my day. I was moving kind of slow. I was even zoning out a little bit as I stood in the checkout line. When it was my turn, I put my groceries on the belt. I swiped my card. I grabbed my bags. I pushed my cart outside. I popped my trunk. And that is when I saw them on the bottom rack of my cart. Two cardboard cases of Diet Coke, which the cashier had not noticed, and so I had not paid for. I checked just to be sure, but there was no bright orange sticker to show proof of purchase, and there was no sign of soda on my receipt. I looked back at the store. (laughs) And you know, no alarm had sounded. There was no manager chasing after me. I looked at the sodas. I looked at my open trunk. Did I mention that I really wanted to go home? Oh, don't worry. The voice of my conscience came through and it was matter of fact. Thou shalt not steal, it said. Okay, I said, I shalt not. And I tucked a box under each of my arms and I went outside, I went back inside rather to do the whole thing over. Driving home, I reflected on what had happened. I had made a moral decision, and it had been easy. It was easy because I have these Ten Commandments riding around in my brain, and I had come into a situation where one of them clearly applied and could simply be acted upon. Sure, I had thought about leaving without paying, I admit that to you, but I had this rule I had a rule to fall back on, and so I made a different choice. It was easy to be a good Christian, I thought. Maybe, said that little voice of my conscience. Maybe, but why don't you check that you remember the other nine? Good idea, I said. And as I did a quick inventory, of course, my self-satisfaction faded I remembered the commandments, but as I went down the list, I also remembered how difficult they are to live out. Several are quite breakable. Of course, as Christians, we know that God loves us, God forgives our shortcomings. God's law is not a test we have to ace to earn grace. Jesus is the one who makes us right with God once and for all. It is not our own doing. But we still carry the commandments around. Not because they tell us everything we need to know about morality in the modern world. We carry them around because they provide, in the words of the theologian Robert Jensen, a brief summary of what a just and loving people would look like. No killing, no theft, No sexual infidelity, no envy. They show us familial piety and worshiping God. That is not a law in the sense that it is something you have to do. It is law in the Jewish sense of Torah. It is guidance, a display of what the good life would look like. A guide to the good life 
a vision of justice and love. That's something I'd like to read. Today, we're going to dive into just one of the commandments. I bet you can guess which one from the faith sharing that we just had with the children. It's the fourth commandment as it is set down in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. But before we go there, let's pray together. Speak to us, living God, as you have spoken to our ancestors, through the voices of your prophets, the breath of your spirit, and the life of your Son, so that we might live according to your word. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now hear the word of God. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your town so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The word of the Lord. I have to give it to my parents. They did Sabbath really well. Sundays when I was growing up were always the same. In the morning, my parents, my brothers, and I would walk up the street to church. We would worship. When we got home, my mom would set out sliced bread and cold cuts, and we would make our own sandwiches. Nothing fancy. Over lunch, we might talk about the service or the sermon. After lunch, my dad would turn on the game. Late in the afternoon, we would take supper out to my grandparents who lived in the country. Sometimes we picked up barbecue at a little joint on the way out. Tennessee-style pulled pork. Once we were out at my grandparents' farm, we might take a walk or just sit on the back porch. There'd be scotch for the grown-ups, plain old tap water for the kids, and then we'd have our supper. On the ride home, we would always listen to the same old cassette tapes, country music, and then we would go to bed early because it was a school night. Honestly, Sunday was kind of boring, but in a good way, in a way I remember, in a way that I'm grateful for now. My folks understood that life is meant to have a rhythm. The good life, the life that God intends, that life includes dedicated time to rest and to worship. That's what Sabbath is about. Time marches on, but every so often we stop and it's sacred. There's a balance, a balance between the ordinary and the holy, a balance between work and rest. And this principle of balance, it's a big part of God's law, even beyond what we just read. Every seven days, work would stop and people would rest. Every seven years, people who had been working to pay off their debts would be released. Their debts would just be forgiven. Every seven years, all farming would stop. Even the, even the land would have a rest. The people would eat what they had stored up and whatever the land brought forth naturally. And at the end of the year, 
that's when work would start up again. But there was a balance, a balance to the days and to the years, and everybody had to acknowledge it. It was this balanced way of life that was sustaining them all. When I think about that, when I think about ancient Israel, or when I think about the less ancient history of my childhood in the 1990s, I find myself wondering, how is my balance today? How is yours? We talk a lot about it, usually in terms of work-life balance. It's an equilibrium that people are seeking to achieve between their professional and their personal lives. We talk about that. I don't know that we do it very well. A recent article in The Atlantic suggests that we should probably just give up on work-life balance. Instead, they say, embrace the imbalance. The rationale is that for overworked people, trying to find balance is just one more thing you have to do. Besides, according to one researcher, working less is such an act of subversion, of resistance, that it's really difficult for individuals to do. The fear is that you will be overlooked by your overworking boss and that you'll be seen as a threat by everybody else. So you embrace the imbalance. You live with it. You can be on a call and be on your commute at the same time. That's what hands-free is for, right? You can do data entry while you're sitting in front of the TV. You can check emails from the sidelines. You can work through lunch or through the night after the kids have gone to sleep. You embrace the imbalance. And it's not so bad. For many of us, our work is something we love. Not all work is drudgery. If we feel called to do what we do, if we have that privilege, the time that we spend working may have deep personal significance. And all work has dignity. It's just that the costs of overwork are high. There's a greater risk for heart attack and stroke among people who work more than 55 hours a week. Rates of anxiety and depression are higher. And we know that our marriages and our other relationships suffer. And so we're back where we started. We're straining for balance, trapped in a culture of work that we didn't create. And sometimes we can feel powerless to change. Maybe a weekly day of rest feels out of reach. Or if it's going to happen this week, it's probably not going to happen next week. You might not be saying, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's an exaggeration. But I think that many of us do live by a similar philosophy, like, I'll rest when I can. We're just not intentional about rest. When we rest, it's more of a crash. We might numb out. There's so many ways to do that now. We've gone way beyond the healthy poor or the pint of Ben and Jerry's. Have you ever watched so many episodes of Netflix on autoplay that a message pops up to ask if you're still there? <laughs> That's the belly laugh of recognition. <laughs> or maybe you've scrolled through your social media feed as hours go by. When did it get dark outside? Or maybe you've done something else to take the edge off, to forget, to relax. And we know it's not really who we want to be, but it feels good, sort of, good as it gets. 
By the way, even if you are retired or if you don't work outside your home, I'm guessing that you get this too. Because every life has its work. Caregiving is work. Raising young children is work. Worrying about grown children is work. Planning your vacation is, ironically, work. Battling illness is work. Recovering from surgery takes a lot of work. So it's something we're all going through. We're in this balancing act together. And I believe that most of us do feel dissatisfied with it, but we indulge in it too. We invest in this way of being because at some level, it's working for us. We like it. We like working long hours because it makes us feel important. Work makes us feel secure. It makes us feel worthwhile, interesting, powerful, in the right. Work seems to offer these things that we want. Rest is an afterthought. We don't have much of a philosophy around it, much less a theology around it. We've lost a sense of what God might want. Or perhaps we are no longer convinced that God's way of doing things is really all that good. To observe the Sabbath. To keep it holy. Simply to stop and rest. If we're out of touch with how to do those things, I think we might also be out of touch with why to do those things. And if we're reading this scripture, we might be inclined to look over the why as it is given to us. Sabbath is justified like this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, that's why the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There's a story behind the Sabbath. It's Israel's story of slavery in Egypt and deliverance at the hand of Almighty God. Perhaps that seems remote, like Bible talk, ancient history. And isn't the commandment really the meat? Only listen closer. Here is something hopeful and true. This invitation to remember is a way toward rest. Remember you were a slave. We can get stuck if we take this too literally. Our memories and our family histories may include slavery or exploitation. It's true, but they also may not or we may not know. Regardless, God is asking us to identify with those who have been oppressed beginning with the ancient Israelites, but not stopping there. And I think that God might also be inviting us to acknowledge those parts of ourselves which are beaten down, to feel our helplessness, to remember our need. Remember, you were a slave. But then remember God. Remember God in a particular way, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God embodied, God reaching out. 
For the Israelites, this was a royal image, the description of a true king making a decree, declaring perhaps that all should be free. But when I hear mighty hand, I can't help but imagine a mother scooping up a crying child with a single gesture. I can't help but imagine a lifeguard reaching out to grab hold of a drowning man, pulling him toward the shore. A mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Imagine that. That is who God is. And this is how God's story goes again and again. God is the one who reaches out, who rescues, who carries us on. If we stop and remember what God has done, if we ground ourselves in those stories and those memories, we can begin to find our balance again. Our illusions of self-sufficiency fall away and we remember how God brought us out, out from grief, out from fear, out from anger, out from shame. That's the primary plot. That's the story of your life. That's the story of our life together with God. Not what we have achieved. What matters is what God has done and what God will do again in us and for us and through us. Remember. Remember and recognize in the words of preacher Barbara Brown Taylor, even if the path seems steep this time, there have been other times. Over her almost 70 years, Taylor has considered the story of deliverance as it is written in her own life. She talks about how an early marriage ended and still she went on living. She talks about how she moved a thousand miles to seek a change of fortune and found a calling. How she left a stable job and did something completely new. How she sat at each of her parents' bedside as their journeys ended. Taylor admits that compared to other people's dark woods, these are barely tall hedges. She does not know, for instance, what it was like to be enslaved in Egypt. But, Taylor says, I could not see my way through any of these situations, nor would I give up a single one of them for the good that they brought me. It helps to remember. I suspect and I think that Taylor would agree that it was God's presence and action, God's outstretched arm, that transformed these difficult times into deliverance stories. And now she has those memories and those stories that steady her in the grace of God. And the good news is that we have those stories too. And so we are here, here on the Sabbath day. We are here because we are practiced at remembering and we have come to rest in God's presence. Or we are here because we're practiced at forgetting. But we know that this is the place to hear God's story. We know that this is the place to rediscover the grace which alone can ground us. You know, that grace is missing in the stories that our culture tells. 
Whether we're talking about finding balance or embracing imbalance, none of that is grounded in grace. And so we choose to observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy, to steady ourselves in the story, and so to remember that we can rest no matter what is going on, no matter what anybody else says, we can rest because the grace of God is cradling us. Being able to notice and feel that grace, it's one of the gifts of our faith. Whether or not my parents aim to instill an attention to grace in me, it was part of those Sundays, the ones I told you about, out at the farm, the smell of the geraniums on my grandparents' porch, the whistle of the wind in the trees, the sunset over the hill, always in the same place, never in the same way. Our hands joined around the table at dinner. The grace of God was and is cradling all of us. Friends, if you know that, or if you even suspect, don't keep it to yourself. Live from today. Live out of the Sabbath. Live so that your life echoes the story of grace. Let the little things slide. Lower your defenses. Acknowledge a failure. Forgive somebody else. Tell the truth. Love too much. Maybe you should take the whole day off or give somebody else a break who really needs one. Whatever you are in a position to do that is gracious, do it. It might not get you a promotion on this side of eternity, but in these things we fulfill the greatest commandment of all, to love the Lord our God with heart and soul and mind with everything we've got, and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In the threefold love of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. My friends, we're about to enter into a time of silence that may last a little bit longer than you're used to. That's on purpose. What I invite you to do in this time is to rest Rest in the grace of God as you know it now, or recall the memories of grace that might give you hope for today and tomorrow. Simply rest in the grace of our God.